Let us pray. Lord, we are your servants. Now as we come to seriously consider your word, I pray that you take the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, and make them wholly yours. That as we seriously consider Holy Scripture this day, we might actively listen and critically think so that we might radically love in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought I would begin today's sermon um, our fourth sermon in this series by just beginning with a little marriage advice one-on-one. Because one of the privileges of being a pastor is that I'm offered uh, the opportunity to have premarital counseling to couples that are considering marriage. And the very first thing I say to a couple, which becomes a regular reminder to them, all the way up to and including the wedding ceremony, is this. It's easy to get married. It is much more difficult to stay married. Now the second thing I say to them is this. Make sure you are marrying someone that challenges you to be the best version of yourself. And the third thing I say, which was great counsel that Amy and I received from Reverend Jerry Everly in Johnson City, Tennessee, when we were married 21 years ago and counting. He said, if you can remain married... 20 years from now, you will be a lot more like your spouse, and your spouse will be a lot more like you. And it's proven to be true in some ways, as I am presently the nicest and most considerate person I've ever been in my entire life, and that's due largely to Amy's presence in my life. And yes, I realize I have a lot more training to undergo. Now, I share this with you today as background for the following illustration that I believe is going to contribute greatly to our understanding of today's sermon. You should know that my marriage to Amy is an iron-sharpening, iron kind of marriage. You know what I mean by that? I mean, she's the oldest child, and I am the only child because my parents stopped with perfection. which makes us both very headstrong individuals. Neither one of us has any issues with challenging the other on the field of battle. So what I share next came from one of our earlier conflicts in our marriage. I have no idea what our argument was about. I just remember how it ended. I said to Amy, you have an attitude problem. And Amy didn't miss a beat. She said, you have a perception problem. (laughs) You have a perception problem. Now, you know, that was funny. Funny enough to kind of stop the fight right there, I think. Maybe. I don't know. And it's funny now, and I've I've shared this with every church ever since it happened, because, um, well, that's the risk you run when you're married to a pastor. And while it's funny, there's a very deep-rooted truth that there um, often causes me to pause and to think, whenever I'm in a given situation, am I perceiving a certain situation or a certain person accurately? Now, last week I shared a challenging sermon as part of this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And the sermon was entitled, Deconstructing Religion. 
Deconstructing Religion, the full title of which was this, Deconstructing Religion Through Special Revelation Reconstructs a Right Relationship with God. One of the major challenges of Jesus' ministry, both then and now, is that he asks us to consider changing our perception of what it means to love God. In other words, Jesus came to offer us a divine paradigm shift, and with that, a divine attitude adjustment. The goal of our relationship with Jesus is to grow in perfection, or as John Wesley would write, holiness of heart and life. But our perception of perfection and God's revelation of perfection are often at odds. See, people think of perfection often as never making a mistake. But the perfection Jesus desires from us is to be made perfect in love. This perfection is given to us through our relationship with Jesus, who is love. However, it's up to us as to whether or not we are going to cultivate our relationship with Jesus as we share our life with him and others. You see, to follow Jesus is first about character and then about conduct. It's not about following the rules so that we can be right and others can be wrong. There's enough of that in the world, isn't there? Rather, it's about wanting to do the right thing, which is loving others as Jesus loves them. You see, for Jesus, the heart of the matter is our attitude. The Pharisees taught that the righteousness consisted of performing certain actions, but Jesus said that righteousness is found in the attitude of our hearts. Because it's sometimes difficult to do the right thing, but it's harder still doing the right thing and having the right attitude about it. So today we're going to get to the heart of the matter by looking at the first three antitheses of Jesus' sermon from his Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, when I mention antitheses, I'm referring to when Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. So today we're going to be discussing these three, the heart of murder, the heart of adultery, and the heart of divorce, and also Jesus' divine attitude adjustment for each. So let's begin with our first. The heart of murder. The heart of murder is anger. Jesus said, you've heard it said that to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka! And I wanted to say that because Jesus is saying a bad word there. I'm going to unpack that in a minute. Anybody who says Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire hell. Now this, this word uh, for anger in the Greek is, is not just anger, but it's the kind of anger that causes us to want vengeance. Jesus is not saying cease to be angry. And notice that Jesus says that we are subject to judgment, not necessarily recipients of judgment. Why? Because we all get angry. Nod your head, yes. We all get angry. Some of us get angry better than others. 
And anger seems to be the number one motion of men because we don't think we're supposed to feel any other way. Right? Anger's comfortable. We all get angry. And anger is an emotion of God. And here's some good things about anger. Anger prompts us to address injustice and to hold each other accountable. But anger unchecked can also cause us to commit horrible acts. Jesus illustrates this by using the curse word of, a, of his time. That's right, Jesus uses a cuss word, not once but twice. Which, by the way, I wish I knew as a teenager. That would have solved a lot of fights in my own home with my parents. Well, Jesus said that. Well, that's not the way he meant it. Well, you're right, I'm just saying. Raka is a curse word, and it's one of the worst insults found in the ancient Near East. Raka is Aramaic for empty-headed one. And it can be likened to fool. Jesus is saying that those who anger in their heart to the point of calling another person a fool, which is a terrible insult during that time, violate the spirits of God's law against murder. Jesus is saying, listen, the heart of murder is anger, so do not let anger control you. Because anger that controls us is the result of pride. And anger that controls us imprisons us. That's why the heart of murder is anger. Listen, if we place ourselves in a jail of hate, then how can we be free to love? As Christians, we are called to pursue agape. That's God's self-sacrificing love. That's our putting our relationship with God and others first. How can we put the best interest of God and others first if we have placed ourselves in the position of God? That's why the first beatitude is also the most important beatitude. Because God has freed us from having to feel like we are Him. By grace, God has offered us a divine attitude adjustment. Humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you all know who C.S. Lewis is? The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. Apparently he's a theologian as well, I'm saying. First thing I think of is the Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. He says humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Be poor in spirit means that we can be free from pride, from the need to be God and from the need to enact what we perceive to be justice when in reality it's just vengeance. Freedom comes by surrendering what we perceive to be our rights, our entitlement thinking. And brothers and sisters, at least in the United States of America, entitlement thinking runs the show, right? But we're called to be different. Our kingdom is not of this world. We might be in this world, but we are not of this world. And so if anybody, anybody should be modeling the opposite of entitlement thinking is the people that say they love Jesus. Humility helps us to step back, breathe, and think about how best to love the person with whom we are angry. And Jesus further built upon his anger illustration to address the importance of resolving conflicts and admitting our mistakes. Jesus said unresolved conflicts can be resolved if humility is present. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, 
Leave your gift there at the front of the altar. Go be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. Now listen. What if today, following worship, you choose to find that person with which you have an unresolved conflict and deal with it? Graciously. Are you poor enough in spirit to try? Would you humble yourself enough to practice that kind of vulnerability? See, Jesus continues by saying, when you are wrong, fix it. I don't think anything communicates better than a puppy. Maybe food. Some of you know that from the first time. Jesus is urging us to deal decisively with conflict so that it doesn't cause anger to fester and control our lives and our relationships. If you're wrong, and especially if you know you're wrong, fix it. Say you're sorry. And listen, sometimes people need to hear I'm sorry from you, even though you didn't do something. Especially if you represent an organization. I represent an organization. Sometimes people are hurt by the church, and I have to tell them I'm sorry on behalf of the church. And I had that modeled for me in the district superintendent. My first pastoral appointment was two years long, and it was the two longest, hardest, most painful years I've ever had in ministry. If I'd had to stay there another year after that, I'd be out. Now, before I got there, they had seven pastors in five years. Does that tell you something? They had seven pastors in five years. We lasted two. I'm not sure how. Um, and, and it was terrible. And I received no support. I received no support from a district superintendent. I received no support from a bishop in cabinet. It was my very first appointment. And I got no help. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was green, 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 green. Right? So I carried that burden with me into my next appointment. And then I got a new district superintendent. Some of you might know him, Tom Salskipper. And I was sharing my anger with Tom. And he said, I want you to know how sorry I am that that happened. And I'm sorry that the conference didn't step up and help. Man, that's, what, that's all I needed to hear. I just needed somebody to say they were sorry. And you know what it costs you to say you're sorry? Pride. That's it. What if I'm not sorry? If you're not sorry, don't say it. But you know, you can go a long way with sorry. And the heart of murder is anger. And unresolved anger can cause us to harm others and harm ourselves. So consider adopting the kingdom attitude of humility. After all, Jesus has already blessed us with it. Now the next antithesis Jesus considers is adultery. And he says that at the heart of adultery is lust. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, Jesus is getting real in the scripture lesson today, isn't he? Look, God created sex, and it is an exceedingly wonderful gift. But God does not place regulations on sex in order to take something away from us. 
God places regulations on sex so that we can experience the full blessing of his grace. A body, mind, soul connection that's shared with only one other person. In fact, the Bible uses language of marriage metaphorically for the return of Jesus. He said, we, the church, are the bride of Christ waiting for our consummation upon the Lord's return. Now, Jesus says the word look. So I don't know about you, but as a guy, I'm like, okay, so if I look at a woman, I think she's pretty in my trouble. Now, Jesus says the look that, that he mentions, it's not a glance. It's that second look. It's that rubber neck. It's like you see somebody pretty walking your way and you go, hey. That's the look. Don't do that. A universal principle of God that's worth remembering is this. When God says no to one thing, it's because he wants to say yes to something better. And Jesus offers us a divine attitude adjustment for lust. It's purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, this, this, those beatitudes are worth more than just that first sermon. You know adultery doesn't happen out of the blue. There's almost always careful planning involved in adultery. And you should know that adultery is not limited to physical encounters. As Christians, we must recognize those thoughts and those actions that precede a sexual act we are considering and then challenge them with purity. That is the attitude. Because if we allow ourselves to indulge temptation inwardly, then it's only a matter of time until we seek physical satisfaction. God has offered us a blessing, a way out, the blessing of purity through Christ so that we can recognize temptation and walk the other way. Do y'all know what repentance means? Repentance, repentance means you walk in this way. I'm going to bring up the lights a little bit. This we found we interactive with stage lighting. I'm going to walk this way. And if I repent of something, I'm going to turn around and walk back the other way. God has offered us that blessing. Now listen, our final antithesis to consider today is divorce. And I know this is a tough sermon. And I want you to know that I'm certain it's going to be difficult for some of you to consider Jesus' words about divorce because of maybe how painful your own divorce has been. Or, like in my case, how painful your parents' divorce was. Know that there's healing. There's healing on the other side of divorce, both for spouses and for the children whose nuclear families have been destroyed by divorce. Perhaps another way to say this, God is good even when life stinks. So with regards to the final antithesis of today's sermon, Jesus says that the heart of divorce is unfaithfulness. He says, it has been said, 
Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now look, marital unfaithfulness here is translated into Greek as porneia. Okay, porneia. It's a broader term for every type of sexual sin you can think of. So Jesus is not saying, listen, Jesus is not saying that a second marriage is considered adultery. He's not saying that. Jesus is saying that if you are divorced and you have remarried, you should not commit the sin of a second divorce in order to try to resume relations with the first person you divorced. Does that make sense? You've already left this person once. Now you're going to leave this person and go back to this person, do this and do that and do this and do that and just knock it off. What Jesus is saying is, should your marriage covenant fail, then when you remarry, you begin afresh. You do everything to incorporate the blessings you've been given by God. The blessings of humility, the blessings of purity, the blessings of righteousness by remaining, remaining faithful to your current partners. And righteousness, friends, righteousness is our final divine attitude adjustment for today. The divine attitude adjustment for unfaithfulness is righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Does anybody remember a few weeks ago when I talked about the means of grace? Show of hands. If you remember me talking about the means of, you don't have to name them, I'm not going to pick on you. But if you remember me talking about the means of grace, raise your hand just so I can see. Oh, fabulous. Thank you. I have Snickers bars for you after church. I'm lying. I don't. But I'm sure I can find something in Kelly's office to give you. The means of grace are these these things God has given us to get close to Him. The study of Scripture, prayer, worship, Holy Communion, acts of service, acts of charity. These are tangible graces God has given us to remain close to Jesus so that we can hunger and thirst after Jesus and be filled by Jesus. So keep Jesus at the center of your marriage because you're going to need Him. You're going to need Him. There is nothing harder in this world, I don't think, than staying married. Y'all, I just did a funeral yesterday for, for a lady who had been married for 69 years. Married for 69 years. That's 24 years longer than I've been alive. That's a long time to be married. I know that many of you have been married far longer than Amy and I have, but I can tell you one of the things that we have learned in our 21 years of marriage is this. There's going to be times in your marriage you will have to be married to Jesus instead of your spouse. Otherwise, it might fall apart. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Brothers and sisters, the heart of the matter is attitude. We are human. That means we're imperfect. We're going to make mistakes, sometimes really big ones. I'm good at big mistakes. We're going to get angry. We're going to think impure thoughts. We're going to have conflicts with our friends and family. We're going to have lustful thoughts from time to time. And we're going to break our promises. We just are because we're human. We're imperfect. 
We are imperfect, but we have a relationship with someone who is perfect. And so we have a choice. Will it be God's attitude? Will it be Jesus in us that speaks to us and through us and for us? Or will it be an attitude of entitlement that causes us to stumble both inwardly and outwardly? Will we allow the attitude of God's grace, His blessing, His happiness to inform and transform us? Will we accept God's divine attitude adjustment? Because trust me when I say, it's an ongoing adjustment of our souls. Friends, the heart of the matter is attitude. And next week, we're going to consider the matter of our hearts. And I really can't wait to share next week's illustration with you. Because if you think what Amy said to me in that argument was good, you should see what she did to me another time. That's great. <laughs> After we've been married many, many years. Until then, friends, keep counting your blessings. You know, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Because some of the blessings you have received are humility, purity, and righteousness. Just to name a few. And this is Jesus' story seriously considered this day. All thanks and praise be to the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.